Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. Before we get started with this week's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners, and if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Brett Bartholomew. Brett is a strength and conditioning coach, author, consultant, and founder of the performance coaching and consulting company, Bartholomew Strength. He's also author of Conscious Coaching, The Art and Science of Building Buy-In. So welcome to the show, Brett. Yeah, thanks for having me, James. So before we delve into today's episode, Brett, can you talk us through, obviously, your early beginnings in fitness and, and kind of get into where you are to today? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> fitness isn't particularly in my realm. Uh, it's more sports performance, right? But like you look at those two, there's obviously some congruent characteristics. So I actually have spent the vast majority of my career training athletes. Um, of course, there's been some gen pop mixed in, and especially early days when I was a teenager, you know, did some personal training and what have you. Um, went and got my undergraduate degree at Kansas State, got a master's degree at Southern Illinois University where I researched and wrote uh, – uh, research on motor learning, specifically how um, attentional focus or cueing impacts performance. Um, the short story would be I've worked both in the team and private sector working with athletes, ranging from military, NFL, NBA, youth, high school, collegiate, kind of that whole spectrum. Now, you know, I still do a wide range of work, but mainly consolidated the past, I would say, four and a half, five years specifically into pro sport. And uh, yeah, that's, that's, the piece there. I mean, I grew up playing sports, baseball, football, boxing, started training fighters in exchange for my training uh, when I was a college, uh, when I was a college athlete. And uh, those would probably be the, the hallmark points. Now, now I'm working on a venture called the bridge human performance, uh, which is a really exciting venture. I'm able to collaborate with both team and private sector strength and conditioning coaches to create a resource that is um, really kind of a, an entrepreneurial venture, as well as one that's focused on craftsmanship, coach development, X's and O's, but it allows coaches to kind of streamline different options for their career. So you might have coaches that, you know, their day-to-day is coaching large groups in the team setting, uh, but they also want to branch out and do a little bit more speaking or consulting. So we offer guidance with that. Uh, We also do some online coaching as well, but all of us involved with the company are actual coaches and we're just able to collaborate on some really cool projects. So that's going to be the next six to 18 months, uh, really getting that going. And if we kind of come back to, um, uh, obviously your research <laughs> university and looking at QA, have you, have you seen obviously working from in that performance, uh, field? Do you see that if we look at it from sport to sport and look at maybe say individual versus team sport, are some individuals better suited in that type of sport environment? Uh, some individuals better suited as individual sport athletes as opposed to team sport athletes? Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just think that that comes from a combination of nurture and nature, right? So yeah, depending on what your upbringing is, what those proclivities are, you know, personality types probably play a role to a degree, but I'm no psychologist, so it would be dangerous for me to assume I have the answer there. But yeah, I mean, I think you see that in where people gravitate. Do they gravitate towards a sport like, um, diving or, you know, American football or proper football and soccer. So I think those things kind of handle themselves over time. If they don't enjoy team sport, they're going to whittle that away and find something that's a little bit more, I don't want to say isolated, but individually focused for sure. And if we talk about more delving into like queuing itself, what are the like precursors that you want to do as an individual to probably imp- improve those? In terms of proving, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that you cut out a little bit there. Um, in terms of like improving your queuing, what are some of the techniques can you could actually employ, employ to improve those? Yeah, sure. I mean, the, I, I talk about these in my book, Conscious Coaching. I always use a three R framework. So it just goes into research, relate, and reframe. And the book goes much more in depth. Uh, but research goes into making sure to ask questions of the people that you're coaching and not just, hey, what got you into the sport? Why do you like this sport? Meaning, you know, ask them who their favorite coach was and why, right? That will give you insight as to how they like to be communicated with, um, you know, what athletes or other uh, individuals they look up to and why. Ask them about where they're from, their background, family, siblings, all these pieces, what they like about their position. 
you know, being able to get really in-depth information as to what drives them, it gives you a lot of really great frames to go off of. After that, you have to volunteer information about yourself because guys aren't going to continue to tell you information, you know, if you just sit there haphazardly and expect them to, uh, to give them, to give you kind of the playbook to their personality, right? Like that's, that would just be weird. You sit there and ask somebody questions. They feel like they're going to get interrogated. And then the final thing is being able to have that art of what I call talking in color. And we reference that in the book as well. You know, how do I take what you, what I've learned about you and what I want, you know, you to be able to achieve either through our training or this process together. And how do we make them mesh together? How do I help you see what I'm trying to do and how that impacts you and is aligned with your goals? So I think that's a really easy framework. Yeah, you know, you can't do the usual coach thing where you just kind of sit there and try to talk shop or be their, you know, be their friend. Like you've got to draw that line. And at the same time, you've got to learn the art of asking really good questions. Well, would it, Brett, wouldn't it come down to a little bit of that psychological essence of reflective practice in a way? Reflective practice in, in what regard specifically? As in looking at getting the athlete to consciously maybe not say look outside the box, but being able to reflect on what they do well, what they don't do well and doing it from that perspective. Sure. I mean, that goes, that all goes into the research piece of that, right? Is asking them questions about all those things. Um, You know, you can ask them any number of questions, but the key is that you're thinking through thoughtful, open-ended questions to get them to answer. And you're not letting them just say, yeah, no, or I just like the game or I'm competitive. It's the art of conversation. I make that point in the book. The art of coaching is about the science of connecting. And we also talk about three stages of internal identification and how you can use that as a coach or with your athletes to be able to help them better reflect and get deeper and understanding, all right, who am I? How can I leverage who I am? How can I better understand and direct the things that matter to me and what I feel like I do best in order to amplify my practices? But isn't it, a bit dangerous at times to use open-ended questions because you can sometimes skew somebody's thought process. I think anything in the world that you do as a double-edged sword, right? So I don't think, uh, I always suggest the alternative. Uh, if you didn't ask open-ended questions, what benefit would you derive of closed questions, right? You're, you're certainly not going to get much from, from yes and no. Uh, I, I don't think that open-ended questions have to be leading answers. For example, if I say, you know, who was your favorite coach or who had the most impact on you as a athlete and why, you know, there's no, there's nothing there that's going to skew them into something I want to hear. That's a completely reflective, open question, right? If you say, hey, don't you think it's true that when it's cloudy weather outside, that everybody seems to be a bit more mopey? That's a leading question because you're suggesting something, right? So I think it just goes into really investigating the types of questions that you ask. That's a good point on your regard. It's a good thing to be aware of. But then that's probably that my background with psychology and talking to psychologists, you can, in certain ways, like as you described, you can lead people to answer how you want well, a study to be interpreted just by the question you ask them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I just think that goes on your ethics as a professional, right? If, you, if you're leading them like, and you want them to answer certain questions that reflect a bias, then you need to ask yourself uh, are you really in this field for the right reasons? Right? Like I, I don't, I, I've never had an interaction with an athlete where I've really been like, man, I really want him to answer this way. I, that, that, that doesn't do anything for me. Otherwise I just coach that guy the same way. Right. So hopefully, you know, you have coaches that really want to learn about their athletes and aren't faking it or aren't just trying to create a bunch of like cult like followers. But I think if that's the case, the athlete will catch a whiff of that pretty soon and probably not train with you long-term. But if we look at it from the other way, Brett, and I think maybe in this day and age it does come up a little bit more, do you think athletes, general population, do want to answer a question that, well, they have their assumption, it's what you want to hear? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's going to be anybody, right? But you just keep digging in the process, right? Like, you got to keep asking that, and then that's the relationship over time you know, you'll be able to see, do their actions align with what they're saying, right? That's why you never take anything at face value. You have to sit there and interact with your athletes over time and say, look at your behaviors, look at your goals, do your behaviors match your goals? And is what you're telling me really the case? And that goes into being a truly observant coach. 
And if we kind of delve a little bit further and, and say, and we look at the terms of the, um, how the book came about, what was kind of the instrumental, how would I put it, um, where you were at the time that you wanted to obviously write the book? Yeah, I mean, there were a number of factors. Uh, one, I talk about really in depth in chapter two, my own personal background and seeing the truly detrimental, almost traumatic effects that being around people that, um, you know, just because they're well credentialed or because they have a certain area of domain expertise, they think that they're really good at their job when in reality they may not be socially and emotionally effective. Um, intelligence to me is not hallmarked by rote memorization of facts. It's hallmarked by adapt the ability to adapt and be fluid across many different social situations and then being effective in those situations, whatever that outcome may be defined by. Um, so I had a lot of those instances when I was younger. I, you know, I'm going to avoid going on in depth because the book, there's about 25 pages on that in particular, right? And I don't want to put your, your listeners to sleep. The other piece is working as a coach now for 11 years, I've seen, you know, now, I mean, we've lived in the information age for how long now, right? We have more and more resources. Have, have those resources really led to us being better and more highly skilled practitioners? I would argue not. I think that some, in some ways, sure, like you have some things that you've been able to add because of the open access source of information, but information alone doesn't make a skilled practitioner. That's why we still have obese doctors. Uh, we have psychiatrists that are probably a little bit loony. We have divorced marriage counselors, and that's not an attack on any of those folks. That's just stating the obvious. You can be well-informed, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you're upholding your end of that spectrum, right? So I think that uh, just seeing things where people were ignoring this psychosocial piece, uh, the communication piece, and just understanding that people aren't Toyota Camrys, no matter what information, what uh, things that you have at your fingertips, you're going to have to be able to communicate with them effectively if you want to have positive outcomes. But doesn't that come back to what well, <laughs> quote, do, do as I say and not as I do in, in certain circumstances? And in terms of, like, you think that that's a good way for people to operate? Um, I would say that is probably a pro and con of it. Obviously, the the con of it is, that as, you, as you've said, you've got obese doctors. And obviously, you could say, you could probably question that as, um, from a fitness and health perspective. Is like, well, how can you say to me, I need to lose weight, but you're not doing it. But then, obviously the pro side of it is probably coming back to that trust element there. And you could say in authority within their field. So you think that trust should come from titles and credentials and not exemplifying a certain kind of behavior? Um, I would say I would probably at times you probably need to be on the fence to a certain extent because Yes, the trust element is important, but as you described it in this episode, you've got to also question that person's ability to adapt. And obviously, well, if you take it from a, you say a coaching perspective, a teaching perspective, you've got to be able to adapt and be able to be on that level with that person, be it you're speaking to a teenager, an adult or a child, you, you can't use the same language. Right. And I don't, I don't think titles, I don't think an arbitrary title, um, you know, lends somebody to be an effective leader. I think titles are illusory. People can make titles up. So um, I, I don't think that that's on the fence. I don't think doing as I say, not as I do is, is always a great thing. I think it happens inherently, like nobody's perfect for sure. Um, but if we had to describe somebody that is a coach that you really wanted to follow into dire situations, you'd want them to believe that they're a man or woman of their word and that they've exemplified that kind of behavior in some degree. Of course, that doesn't mean that a coach of a power lifter needs to be able to squat a thousand pounds until they go into the grave, because there's going to be certain limiting factors. Uh, but they should probably know, they should probably lift weights to some degree, as long as they're medically able to continue to do so. Uh, otherwise, you have just a world of more and more charlatans, which I think is our primary problem right now. I think social media has allowed for people to open up the floodgates and act as if they're authorities on topics and swim in those uh, waters that they maybe can't even touch the shallow end of. So it gets dangerous, right? We're helping people here and it should be more than 
this promotion and this self-important kind of agenda that folks have. You just got to put stuff out there that has value. I think that's more important than anything else. But Brett, obviously you, you touched upon it there. Doesn't it come back to the individual themselves to take onus on probably as you, you said early doors is to reflect, look for those red flags and kind of, if something, it doesn't look right, doesn't sound right. Should you not just, should you not trust your gut and see those red flags of what they are, as opposed to with social media, obviously it's very much visual. Uh, you and not trust the person, as you say, for face value. Yeah. I don't think anybody should trust anybody at face value. I think that's uh there's a very unique quote and, you know, apologies for the language, but it's at it as it was told to me and it's in the book. It's always had a tremendous impact on me, <clears throat> excuse me, as excellence is self-evident and so is bullshit, you know, so something may look great, smell great, you know, feel great, but you'll know if you're around it to a large degree. Uh, if that's the case, I mean, think what a tremendous opportunity you have, right? With the podcast that you've created, you get to interact with people from all over the globe. And I would argue, and please correct me if I'm wrong, probably within the first 10 to 20 minutes, you can tell if that person is as advertised, right? Like a lot of times we have people are the larger than life personas on social media. And then, you know, you meet them in person and it's like they clam up because they don't have some script in front of them or because, you know, they don't, they're, they're not surrounded by their kind of posse of supporters or they're not in their comfort zone. And it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, different domains are, are, are definitely going to have a different impact on folks, but you should be some semblance of just integrity as being who you say you are. And I think that's, that's something we've got to keep top of mind. I, I think it's could probably go a little bit further than that in terms of like you say, if they're not surrounded by uh, familiar faces, it could be, well, you could say it's confidence and they're not used to uh, being, well, socializing, interacting with somebody that they don't know. But then, as you say, it could be if you did take them outside their comfort zone and, like you say, they're talking BS, you can quickly find out that's the case by questioning them or you can kind of probably where it comes up big big and evident is if they're very much um, contrary to what they say on social media. You say, well, obviously you don't, if you're saying that to me and at the time of recording, it's very much personal. It's obviously going to go out to an audience at times and you, you're saying the complete opposite at times to your, to your uh, what would be the word, niche uh, and, and so on. Well, it's kind of two-faced. Yeah, yeah, no question. And and you make a great point for sure. Like I'm not insinuating that somebody's a little reticent or shy on camera is a false or fraud. I'm talking about the content of their message, right? Like the delivery. Um, of course, we can all be nervous in certain circumstances and what have you, but uh, your core identity in, in what you say or your themes of what you're saying should still get across. You'll actually find that people will be pretty forgiving um, more often than not if they see somebody that's blushing or shy and nervous and 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 doesn't speak correctly at the time because you can tell through other forms of body language or their level of engagement in that interaction if they're really trying, right? Like it's just the moment's got the best of them a little bit or if they're sitting there kind of darting their eyes around being like, uh, yeah, I don't know. Squats are good. I think I, yeah, you know, so I think that you you can never take anything completely at face value. That's what makes studying people so fascinating when you agree. Well, definitely. Well, it's, I think it's, I, I was, I was talking just about this yesterday with my family and then my mom was saying, I was doing that even as a child. You're thinking, I don't remember do like, like analyzing people and pushing buttons. You're thinking, uh, I don't remember doing it, but, but being, going to the extent, I don't know how young I was, but as a child, go, you know, pushing the right buttons but knowing when to stop, when it's going to, obviously, you're going to get you in big, big trouble. So you're thinking, well, if my family's saying that to me, I don't know, I'd have probably been preteen or something like that, I'd have thought, I've been doing it almost 20 years, that kind of nature of analysing people. And obviously, well, it's not a good thing pushing people's buttons. But I was say, what draws you to that? What do you like about pushing people's buttons? I think from a sporting context, you can get under people's skin and obviously from a, probably from that context, you're doing it 
to not undermine them, but kind of get them away from the game. But from, I don't know, from a personal thing, it's not, it's, I wouldn't say, it's probably not a good thing because you're trying to annoy somebody, which is not great. Yeah, or sometimes people, when they do that, when you find folks that like pushing other people's buttons, it's very insecurity driven where they're trying to, they want to show they can hang with that person or throw them off their game and establish some level of superiority, you know? And of course, like that's very different than the sporting context. You look at Mayweather McGregor, right? That's a whole promotional thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like we know that those guys behind closed doors are like, okay, we just fooled the world, you know, way to go. Like you go your way, I'll go my way. Uh, But it is interesting because you see that a lot in coaching. You see people trying to like poke one another, do this, do that. And I think as a younger strength coach, sometimes I'd, you know, I'd, I'd fire back. I never got involved in it, you know, but um, now I've just learned, you know, it's, it's kind of like Jay-Z, you know, if somebody says something to, to Jay-Z, I don't think he's going to spend too much time responding. Uh, and neither does Eminem. Everybody, you know, this is a, everybody likes to fight for their piece of the pie, but <laughs> there are more than enough athletes and people for us all to work with and train that I don't run other people's races, right? Like you stay blinders on, Focus on what you have to focus on and let other people's issues be their issues. I think, Brett, with, in terms of that, I think it's like like we've attested to, it's social media has probably hyped that up a little bit in terms of people are, I wouldn't say, I, w- I wouldn't generalize and say it's more potent now than it was, say, 10, 20 years ago. With people, it's more visible. They're more concerned with what others think, whereas I think it's probably a big one within the fitness industry you could probably say because people don't like to be bad mouthed and, and, and kind of dragged through the dirt, but it's not a bad thing from, if you use like your quote with the research, you want that peer review at times because on the plus side, if you get uh, commended by your peers, that's a good thing. So you, yeah. should, be able, you should be able to take it on the flip side if they don't agree with what something you've said, some de- to some degree, the negative aspect of things. Yeah, no question. No question. Yeah, that's a good point. But in terms of probably that, it's a difficult one because, like you were saying, it's we shouldn't be concerned with what other people think. But I think it's become a societal problem probably I say the media probably hypes it up a little bit sometimes with the likes of term unquote celebrity they've become famous for no apparent reason or uh, the big one I think it's probably the dangerous one was the celebrity backing say fitness or health things and they've got no expertise whatsoever yeah it happens a lot happens a lot that's for sure that is for sure. But what is, your, what is your take on that? And what should people probably take face value? I'm very much, if I see that, I'll, I'll delve into the be it article, uh, news piece and say, well, okay, they've backed this. What are the pluses of it? Obviously, the, the name helps the brand, but what are the people actually getting from it? Because I think, what was it, the when I was reading about a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I can't think of what the actress was. But she was back in a, oh, and this was in a company that's got gyms in New York City and in the Hamptons. So obviously it's lots of money is involved. I think it was, I don't know, $800 a month to just be a member. So obviously it's out of the realm of most individuals anyway. So it's, sure. it's probably... Uh, a bit ludicrous, but saying, well, what can you get? There's probably like we, we didn't discuss is if you're paying more for something is not necessarily going to be better than say something that you're paying. I don't know if we say 10% of that and say $80 is not always better. Yeah. I want to make sure I understand the question. Are you saying what, what can we take away from people that, are kind of phonies or frauds or what's it, what's the hallmark question there? Um, 
you could I could take it from that one and I'll probably rephrase it a different way. Yeah, I mean I think I think just part of being I think part of being a thoughtful, reflective and holistic minded individual just comes from always looking at things in a balanced perspective. I think, you know, I don't know many intelligent absolutists or at least ones that uh again it depends I guess it depends on your uh definition of intelligence. Um, but I think that you have to look at something. I mean, a, a popular example is Jillian Michaels and granted fitness is not, is not my domain. Um, but you know, I can see just from being observant how that affects other things. And, you know, people will say, Oh, you know, she did this, she did that. And uh, of course, like, and not even being completely familiar with her work, but what I saw, like, you know, it was just a bastardization of certain principles, right. And uh, characterization of a lot of things that aren't true. Uh, but she obviously knew how to put herself out there and it worked. And so do I think other people should follow suit in that? No, not in the way that she did it. I think you have to do your due diligence, but I would argue that she probably had a pretty strategic business mind and some people could benefit from enhancing their business mind for sure. I mean, my father's a financial advisor and I knew I didn't want to go into that, but I knew that there were principles that I could take from that to better support my family. So the money we do make is more carefully invested. So I think there's always somebody you can learn from. I mean, some of the worst, most atrocious, um, horrific leaders in history, you know, what they did and, and who they did it to and how they did it, you can even take learning events from. And that just comes, you know, from doing proper investigation and, and understanding what you're looking at. Uh, but I don't think that that should be looked at as a quick and easy route for people to do those kinds of things. You know, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with promotion. I used to think there was, but if you're putting value out there, then put it out there. I mean, researchers do it, right? Like how many articles do we have on our desk? I'm holding up right here. That's a form of promotion. Somebody puts something in a journal article. Oh, here's another one. That's a form of promotion. They want their name at the front of the article because they want to be perceived as a subject matter expert, right? And there's nothing wrong with that because they're putting information out there for somebody. Now, if you're putting something out there that's going to hurt somebody or detract from their lives or do something negative and doesn't add value in any other place than your pocketbook, then I think you need to think twice. But Brett, why did you think in the past that promotional um, or promoting oneself was a bad thing? Uh, that's a great question. It was specific to my domain coming up in collegiate strength and conditioning here in the United States, specifically in football. You are just taught that being a strength coach means you're behind the scenes. You should not be heard from. Your job is just to coach your athletes and then kind of fade quietly into the to the background, uh, which, you know, there's there's great pieces about that, right? It's not about you. It's not about any of us. But at the same time, it's just like any other career. As you want to expand the opportunities available to yourself and your family, uh, you're going to have to do some things that, that put yourself out there a little bit more. I mean, who would, get, who, who would get a head coaching job in sport or who would get any kind of job promotion if to some degree their work wasn't evident? So I, don't, I think in the past, we used to live in a world where if you just did a good job and had a fairly robust network that you were um, that you were bound to, you know, get some promotions and have some good opportunities you come your way. I think in the loud world that we live in today with media and this and that, and everybody's connected and there's networks everywhere. I don't think it's always that easy. I don't think it's as simple as, you know, somewhere, some, somewhere, one of the best coaches, trainers, therapists, whatever domain you want is, is sitting quietly and uh, nobody even knows about him or her. And that doesn't necessarily mean that just because they're doing good work, they're going to get the job that they want or some great opportunities. I think now is the best time in the world to branch out, put yourself out there a little bit because you can help more people if you leverage networks the right way. But when I was where I was brought up in collegiate football, um, that was very, 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 uh, it was just shunned against. If you were on the internet in any capacity whatsoever, you were somebody that wasn't doing your job. But if we kind of use the American football as the example, could you not say to some extent the strength and conditioning coaches are possibly more influential than the than the head coach, so to speak, and that and that coaches, what you're saying, oh, that they can't put themselves in the media limelight, so to speak, but they're on national television. Yeah, I mean. To, to piggyback on that, I mean, because you said, but couldn't you say, I would say it's also, could you say, right? Like, because it's not, you're not contrasting my point. It sounds like you're agreeing with it, that coaches, you know, strength coaches do have 
a huge influence and you're spot on. I mean, we're, we're around the athletes far more than their sport coaches. Right. But it's just, it's been this kind of coal miner culture where, you know, strength coaches have struggled for so long to find a way to prove their value that they've done it in a sense of who's worked the longest hours, who's coaching the most, who's doing that because that's their badge of honor because I could be the head strength and conditioning coach for an elite team and that may or may not transfer into wins and losses. And we see that, right? There are great, great teams that are achieving massive success despite maybe having a very poor strength and conditioning coach at the helm. Uh, And then there's also teams that are not winning as much that have tremendous strength coaches because, you know, just getting somebody stronger, faster, more resilient that's not necessarily going to transfer into a team sport the same way it would track and field, right? Because the variables are far different. Yeah. You need to have a great strategy from your sport coaching standpoint. You need to have people around you that understand how to play their position, do it well and do their job. Um, There's so many variables in terms of the folks on the other side of the ball. And so I think that's where strength coaches have struggles is like, Oh God, how do I, how do I show value? How do I, you know, show people that I'm the best? Oh, okay. I'll just act like I work more than anybody else, which is funny, right, James? Because how many times you get on Twitter or social media and see dentists being like, yeah, come to our, come to our place. We did 15 more root canals than the guy next to us. Or I'm here all day. I'm a lawyer. I'm here all day, every day. You know, I do more cases than anybody else. It's like, well, not really worried about if you do more cases. I'm worried about if you win more cases. And I know I wouldn't want a dentist that works like 18 hours a day because you have a drill next to my gum line and I would hope that you're somewhat fresh and ready to go. Um, But in our field, it's about who does the most, most, most. So I I think that'll fade over time. I just think coaches have been scared and and you could educate me on if it's the same way in the fitness realm. Uh, But I just think sometimes people are scared at that whole, no, I can work smart. I can get all my clients or groups or teams or what have you done in an efficient manner. And uh, guess what? I can still go home at night and, and see my wife and kids or husband and kids and whatever. I think, yeah, bro, I think you bring up a good point there. But in, is it the same in the fitness? I, I would agree. I think you're taught to some extent there's that misconception that they'll say to people, and I, um, this is only one company that I've worked with uh, in the past. They say, oh, you can work the hours that you want, which is at the beginning is not, not possible because you can't dictate to a client. Oh, I'm only working these certain hours. This is only the slots I've got because you, you can't, um, use that kind of influence straight off the bat. So it's like, well, when, for me, that was a red flag straight away. You, yes, you as the tutor of this course can do that because you're established. You, you've got that base. You've got the, uh, following, uh, be it, um, what's the other word I want? Um, kind of the scope and the referrals to be able to pick and choose the hours that you work. But somebody starting out cannot do that. They can't just, okay, maybe if they're coming from another gym environment, possibly. Um, but when you're starting out, but then kind of when you're saying working long hours, is that better? Um, they, I think some, some, professionals would probably say yes because they're successful but like on the flip side of anything if you're working multiple amount of hours yes you're going to burn out and if you've got a family environment as well as that you possibly are sacrificing that for your business so I think with the online platform I think that does bring a little bit of that probably the work-life balance into perspective because yes then you can work so to speak the hours that you want and still have a life and have a life outside of that yeah no question yep no question I agree wholeheartedly and you have you have unique insight there because it seems like from your body of work that that's that's a domain that you're really familiar with and uh you know I just think that this is, we're in a different, people don't understand 21st century is a bit different, right? Like when you're, when you're early on in your career, for sure, burn as much oil as you can and shoot. Even right now I'm starting a new kind of entity for coaches. I am not getting as much sleep as I'd like. And my training has had to adjust and and things like that, but it's this glorification of busy that needs to go away, right? Like I don't ever feel the need to get on and be like, Oh my gosh, the busiest guy in the world, right? You still make time for things. Like 
you know, I, I have uh, groups I'm going to coach before and after this podcast, and I have a number of other things I'm going to work on, but uh, I'm still able to squeeze this in because you can prioritize that, right? It would be very easy for me to reach out to you because the amount of podcasts that I've done since the book has come out has been awesome. It's been really great. Um, but I could have easily reached out and just been like, hey, man, too busy. Sorry. Thanks, so. You know, and there, there are some things I do have to say no to. Yeah, that, I think that's another good topic to segue into is saying no. That's the biggest thing I struggle with now is uh, because of this highly interconnected age that we live in, if I say no to somebody, even if it's for an altruistic and honest reason saying, hey, you know what, I'm behind, I got some massive projects coming up, I just can't commit to it now, let's check back in six months, um, you, you leave that up to that person to just be like, ugh, blowing me off, this person's big time, this person's this, right, we're so emotional, it's, you know, and, and this will probably be one of the last podcasts I do do for the next three months, uh, because I have those projects, but you know, you learn as you get older and you know this, right? Like you seem like a really sharp, intelligent guy that's been through a lot, given your tremendous accomplishments athletically. And, and not everybody's going to like you, you know, and even if you helped every cat out of a tree, every old woman across the street and you, you know, you worked with the homeless day in and day out, there's still going to be a lot of people that just think you're a self-serving whatever. And, and I've learned to, I've learned to just kind of deal with that because as long as the people that know you really, really closely and the people that work with you day in and day, I, you know, who cares what the people on the fringe think? That's life. Somebody made a great comment the other day, like, oh man, you know, I love people, but they go, if you ever want to lose faith in the human race, just read YouTube comments, literally go to anything. <laughs> and these people just sit there. It's so funny. It's like furry cat 820 will sit there and just dislike everything. Meanwhile, it's some 11 year old kid in a video game chair sucking down Mountain Dew. You know what I mean? Like, but it's, it's funny. I think that's why psychology and understanding chaos, envy, and all these kinds of things that make us, you know, oddly, oddly, um, what's the word I want to look cannibalistic and corrosive sometimes is so intriguing to me. Cause it's like, why go out of your way? There's already like enough crap in the world. Like why go out of your way to, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to find negative stuff out there in my opinion, at least. But Brad, I think you bring up a good point there with, in terms of when people interpret, uh, say, like you said, for a good reason, it's probably reflecting on the circumstances because obviously you're saying you're busy over the next three to six months. But check back with me in six months to, to, to obviously get it uh, engaged. It's not you saying predominantly, well, not predominantly, but an outright no, it's, this time, this moment in time, it's not ideal for me. Let me, well, reschedule it for a more ideal time. It's, it's so it's it's probably uh, redefine. It's probably maybe how the person's brought up as well. It's it's I've been very much. Uh, you you got to look at it in the grand scheme of things. The person's not said outright no. It's I'm I can't not I can't do it at all. It's the, it's just not right for now. Or right. when you say it, you you probably would do your research in terms of well, does that 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 podcast um, add value to what I'm doing? And 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 obviously, as a big more influential person, you've got to obviously do that. It's it's probably it comes back to that self promotion to some extent. It's probably trying to grow the audience, so to speak. And doing it that so it's picking and choosing uh, what, when, and when you do things. So obviously you're in a probably in a good position to do that, and it's probably for the other individual to take that on board and say they probably say for them if there's somebody that's lower down the pecking order that they've got to kind of reflect on that one and say, well, would you do that to somebody else below you? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't think you're always, you know, you make some valid points. I just think you have to always assess where you're at and what's going to be most beneficial to the long-term goals. Right. And so I just try to keep those things in front of me when you're, when your values are clear to you, making decisions becomes easier. And I know I'm in a point right now where, um, you know, it's very important for me to be more involved in, in helping more of the coaching community. Cause I think there's some things that we could do better. And I think we have some really special people in our field. I think a lot of times our issues get you know, swept under the rug. Um, and so things, things that I do or do not take on at this point in time have to allow me to make the biggest ripple possible 
Um, and there's different times or seasons, right? Sometimes that may be doing more podcasts. Sometimes it may be writing a book. I mean, I hate writing. I never thought like I always wanted to write a book before I died, but I hate writing just the process of sitting, you know, and you're in the same chair for a long time. And I know a lot of people, including myself would still say that writing helps clarify your thoughts, but I'm also a little bit more, this sounds really messed up. I'm a little bit, I'll say socially inclined as opposed to orally inclined, um, that I find clarity through speaking my thoughts and I enjoy talking to people. Um, writing just seems to take quite a bit of time and it's not something when I'm sitting, those ideas don't flow as freely. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. You know, when I'm kinetic, those ideas, those emotions, the parallels I'm able to draw between seemingly disparate ideas is a lot easier for me. A lot, you know, comes a lot more easily to me you know, writing, I'm like sitting there, I'm like, oh, I don't really like, and then when I do put anything out, I'm just like, this sucks. Uh, <laughs> you know, which like, it always intrigues me when some people write, I think they're like, oh yeah, I'm the end all be all. You know, I, I'm very much the opposite. If I look at like my writing, I'm like, oh, that's, I don't even listen to myself on podcasts, but, but that's, I think that's natural to a degree, but no, you make some fantastic points there. But are you going right. to write a book? People have said to me, why don't you? But it's, it's, <sighs> It's probably comes back to happens like you said early doors. It's does it add value? So it's it's probably yeah yeah. People say oh you should write a book on this. Yeah, but if I can't aid people and they get benefit out of it, what's the point in pointing out? Well, why do you think they wouldn't get benefit out of it? I mean, listen, I I, I under I understand just real quick because like I thought my mom and like three friends would maybe read my book, and then it's like. I had no idea, excuse me, especially because we self-publish it, that it would become a bestseller, let alone in four months. You know, it ended up hitting like the top 10. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm just saying that because I didn't think what I said was anything special. I hoped it helped, right? But like, essentially, you're saying the same thing. Like, it's if you feel like you have something that could help people, put it out. There's only one way to find out, man. Put skin in the game, you know, and you seem like you have really interesting perspective and the things you accomplish are not normal. Uh, and so I think sometimes just telling some stories and making sure that it's in a, in a relatable kind of helpful way. I don't, I don't think you'll go wrong. But to kind of come back to my boy, I was going to ask you if you had the chance to maybe, what would it be the word? Do it as an audio book. And you would have thought maybe it, it's going towards that in the future. That probably books are going to be more and more in that that kind of genre would it be would it have been easier for you to well we use the quote writing because it's not really the writing but if it was in that kind of uh realm that you were speaking your thoughts as opposed to writing them down would that have been easier to do been no not not in that context because it's not like giving a powerpoint presentation or even doing a podcast if i'm gonna speak something that would essentially become a book with no written script or format you'd be in a lot of trouble. You know, you'd get, you'd be very repetitive. It would probably lack a lot of organization. You'd essentially be coming up with it on the fly because you might have an outline together, but nothing to fill those gaps. Um, it would be hard to tie everything in. So I, you know, I, I don't know if anybody would ever be able to verbally do an audio book, like an audible thing without having written a book or at least a very, very thorough manuscript at the very least. Um, you know, I also do audible. I think people sometimes drastically underestimate what that takes. And I didn't know either, right? Like before I, uh, did this, you know, even writing a book, I mean, that I'll be very open that cost me and my family $20,000, more than $20,000 to write a book because you're, you're paying editors, you're paying a graphic designer for the cover. Um, you know, you're, I, I wrote it between 11 PM and 2 AM you know, when I wasn't coaching people, obviously, like it's super late at night. Uh, and then, you know, to make the decision not to go with a publisher, because a lot of the publishers wanted to make it more kind of leadership oriented, you know, in terms of, you know, not, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it wasn't going to be as kind of strong wording. It was going to be more kind of sing-songy leadership book, you know, because they want it to be a massive audience so they can get their investment back. And so it was tough because now I'm like, okay, I have to put all this money in. I'm putting all this time in. Supremely stressful. I probably rewrote the book four or five times. And keep in mind, I, I don't even know that I had 
written more than two blog articles in my life because it's just not my passion. Um, and then to have to promote it myself and through word of mouth, like that's tough, right? And then I didn't understand that like Amazon, that's another thing, right? So reviews are critically important. So I always have to ask people to please, please, please leave a review because that affects how Amazon prices things. That affects this and that or or just because people will reach out to me and say, hey, what's your book about? And I don't, you know, I don't want to sit here and be like, oh, dude, you know, check out my book. I'd rather have you guys state your, so I would just say, hey, love it or hate it. Can you put a review on Amazon, please? Because it keeps the pricing of the book fair because Amazon controls all that. And then two, it helps other coaches or people learn more about it. Um, so it's a massive undertaking. And then to do Audible, I just found out, you know, probably a few months ago, now, the microphone that I'm talking through you now, you have to buy a special mic. If you want to do this yourself, special mic, recording equipment, you have to send it in a certain file size. You know, you have to do all these steps. I mean, it's crazy. You have to go back and filter it. You have to have a pop microphone so that you don't hear that, you know, when you're talking. Uh, there can't be any ambient noise. So if I'm midway through a chapter and my dog barks, now I have to make a, some kind of sound and go back and edit it. And then only after you have this perfect file, audio file, can you submit it to Audible and then you pay for all this other stuff. Or you can basically just say, hey, you guys do it. But then you risk an author that's not familiar with your subject matter material. You're, or a, I'm sorry, not an author, a narrator. You're paying them a significant sum of money and they're already getting that money. So now you're out more money and you don't write these books for, I get like three bucks if somebody buys it off Amazon, right? Like it's not like people think if you write a book that you're like rich. Um, but my point is, is a lot of people be like, Oh, it's going to be on audible now. And I'm like, Oh dude, I'd love for it to be on audible. And I'd like to narrate it. Cause I think it's a, it's usually more personal that right. Right. But man, you guys don't know what it takes. I'm still trying. I only wrote the book. Like it only came out five months ago. I'm still trying to recover. It's like, you know, you seem the same way. So correct me if I'm wrong. I don't want to assume when I'm coaching or around certain friends, I'm very extroverted. Right. But when I'm not in those environments, I'm a pretty introverted person. And I find that after I'm, you know, done coaching for the day, or even after I'm done doing a podcast like this, I don't really want to talk that much the rest of the day. I kind of want to just chill and be left alone. So that takes a good bit out of you too. You know, that's how writing a book is. You, it's like you go to this really loud, obnoxious party and, you know, everybody wants to talk to you or you've been coaching 12 groups that day when you go home, you don't really want to hear yourself speak. Like I'm still trying to recover from that book. It was just a lot of emotional and creative energy, I think is what I'm trying to say. I would, I would definitely agree. I'm probably very much similar to that. Yeah. It's hard, man. So a lot of times you just want to be like, no, leave me alone, please. I love you guys. I'm really glad, but like, I'm not putting out an audio book in the next three months. It's, it's more work than you think. Um, but I'm glad that there's interest in it. And I think that would be a fascinating idea that you posed, you know, I just think it would be pretty hard, you know, to, to lock into an audio book like that. You know, I think you'd have to have a really thorough manuscript to go off of. But you probably could go a step further than that in terms of, uh, be it coaching, anything scientific from somebody that's not interested in the subject could obviously switch off because the kind of language that is used is yeah. at, well, even reading at times can be quite boring. Yep. Yep. No question. No question. Really good question, man. You asked some very thoughtful, unique questions. I appreciate that. Well, it's probably, that's probably come down to my nature and being, I would say quite laid back. And that's kind of, kind of questions I like to be. It's not, as you say, it's not scripted. I think it comes back to, I think some individuals that are laid back and be able to do it on the fly of, can kind of think on their feet. Whereas if you've got a structure and I say, well, this is question one, two, three, four, you say like in that order and you answer a different way that I'm not expecting to, it kind of can throw somebody off. Whereas I think when you are the opposite, I think you can adjust because, okay, okay, I've got to concentrate and listen to what your answer is to yep. be able to ask a follow-up question, but you're not, not, you're not leading the guest. Sometimes you can, if you are scripting it to some extent, you can refer back to a bullet point that you had, but it's kind of having that ebbs and, ebb and flow 
and I kind of adjust it like that because I think in the past I've had a, I have had a script, but how I've asked the questions, it's not muddled it up, but those sequences weren't in the same order, but it was still that kind of questioning. But I think it dep- It very much comes down to, I think, the guests at times because some some will ask in advance, "Can you send me questions?" Those are at times are quite difficult because it's like, yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, no, I've I've asked you to come on. I've not really thought about any questions yeah. at the moment. Yeah, and, and and make you make a good point, right? Like you just, it's a conversation, right? And conversation is a dance, and it should be natural. And no one's listen to a bunch of scripted jargon at all. I mean, I know I don't, yeah, I'll, I'll get on a plane. I'll be like, all right, I'm ready to listen to something. I'll turn it on in the first like 30 minutes of the podcast is just like, hello, what is your name? Where are you from? You know, it's like, all right, dude, I'm, maybe I'll just, ma'am, can I have some peanuts? I'm going to pass out here for about an hour. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's like, I can appreciate that. I, no I think, I think the only question that is generic would be the intro question. I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's necessary. Right. I don't know. I'm, it's not like I'm Richard Branson. I don't expect people to know who I am, you know? And so, uh, yeah, no question. No, it's, it's been a lot of fun. You ask great questions and I'm glad we were able to get on here. So last question, Brett, before we wrap up the show, sure. if you had to summarize this episode into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? The interaction that you and I have had? Yes. Okay. Let me think about this. Cause one thing I've been working on is, um, giving a little bit more, delayed responses. In my family, we're very much a catchphrase family. It's a bunch of smart asses that always have to come back with something, right? And so there's a time when that is not necessary. And this is one of those times I would say, uh, and I'm not going to say anything trite because the easy one would be like, oh, enlightening. I think this is a really enlightening, uh, you know, I think that this is just one that is, you know, there's broad strokes here for sure. Th- Cause I think we covered a lot of unique aspects. It hasn't just been like, you know, this monomania about one subject. So broad strokes, um, you could use that. You could use free flow. I just say diverse. Uh, you know, I think we've covered some diverse topics here. You know, we're not talking about the five ways to do a squat. And, and I think that that's necessary. I think thoughtful, like crucial conversations about a variety of subjects that challenge us and make us think a bit more deeply is needed. So, I would say just diverse. So Brett, once again, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, James. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.